What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Recorded live. A-U-N, American Underground Network. The primary reason why the individual citizens of a country create a political structure is a subconscious wish or desire to perpetuate their own dependency relationship of childhood. Simply put, they want a human God to eliminate all risk from their life, pat them on the head, kiss their bruises, put a chicken on every dinner table, clothe their bodies, tuck them into bed at night, and tell them that everything will be all right when they wake up in the morning. This public demand is incredible, for the human God, the politician, meets incredibility with incredibility by promising the world and delivering nothing. So who is the bigger liar, the public or the God prophet? All revolutions have been led by young people. If you just think of the TV images of whether it's Tiananmen Square or whether it's the uh, revolts in Central America or Europe, the young people, it's the college people who are more principled and not locked in and they're not embedded with the government. They are the ones who are concerned about the future because the future is theirs. My research has shown at this point that the future laid out for us may be just about impossible to change. I do not agree with the means by which the powerful few have chosen for us to reach the end. I do not agree that the end is where we should end at all. But unless we can wake the people from their sleep, nothing short of civil war will stop the planned outcome. It's the National Collective Consciousness Show with Dee Dee Farrell in Portland, Oregon, Jim Conant, Jr. in Cincinnati, Ohio, <laughs> Steve Harris in Charlotte, North Carolina. Now, live from Evanston, Illinois, your host, Fred Smart. Hey, thanks, everyone. It is indeed every week a great honor to come back on this call and help moderate uh, the show. Uh, this call has been going on close to nine years. We're going to celebrate our ninth anniversary this May, and it's not unlike jumping in the middle of a river in our own little boat, and uh, it's sort of self-navigating. The guests, that those attending, those listening, those after the fact that share the archival link and everything else, it's part of uh, being a, a member of a community uh, that is striving to be self-aware, knowledgeable, happy, and healthy. Sam Sewell has been out there for, for many years, uh, probably at the leading edge uh, of these movements of, of truth, of justice, of awareness, of spiritual enlightenment. And uh, he's been on this call a couple of times in the past. And uh, we have uh, uh, indeed been gratified to have him on. And, and, and he's going to share something really, really special tonight. Sam, uh, along with his wife, Bunny, 
have been together as close partners, helping to counsel, to coach, to train people in the ways of healthy and, and happy living uh, for all of their lives. Uh, Sam also is a, a member of Mensa, and he has been the youth coordinator for his local Mensa chapter for many, many years, going all the way back to 1981. And uh, he's written blogs. He's shared many things. He's going to take us into a new way of, of thinking. We've heard about this in the past, but thoughts hold so much in the way of power, in the way of energy, in the way of, of health and, 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 and awareness and happiness. And uh, Sam is going to share ways that we can enlighten that thought and push that forward in a, in a positive way as an individual and as, as, as a community going forward. Didi has talked many times about the, the power of prayer, the power of intention, the power of, of, of thinking positively and praying for others. Uh, we all share this, this quest on this call. That's why we're here. We like to hear the truth. We like to hear people share these things. So Sam has the floor for the whole hour. And as I told him, I said, you know, this is going to be just one hour, but we'd love to have him back on to amplify what he shares with us tonight. Sam Sewell, thank you for coming back on our call. Hey, it's a pleasure to be here again, Fred. Now, the title of your of your speech tonight or, or presentation tonight, could you explain that? Come to think of it. <laughs> well, I was just trying to come up with a what I thought would be a clever uh, way to describe or at least to put a title on what is a really complex uh, lecture that I do. I've delivered this lecture to my young people with Mensa before. I've also delivered it. I'm president of the Theological Center here in Naples, and I've presented it there. And basically what it does is it takes us from the principles of cognitive therapy to the physiological application of what it is that goes on, how thought affects our individual physiology. Then we go to how thought affects reality as we experience, that our thinking actually has an impact on the nature of the cosmos. And then finally, I try and hook all of that together with theology. Terrific. Where do we start? Well, we're going to start at home plate. What I mean by that is what I do for a living is I'm a psychotherapist. Okay. Actually, that's what got me thinking about all of these things. But um, let's do a little bit of a history lesson here. The field of psychotherapy, most people would know, was started by Sigmund Freud back around the turn of the last century. That influence lasted for a good 50 years. During that time, psychiatrists and psychologists would go to conventions and otherwise get together socially, and they even had little jokes that they talked about, and the jokes had to do with the premise that some of them had that mental illness causes certain thoughts to show up in people's thinking. The example that was frequently given is that people that suffered from depression would say things like, all I've ever wanted from life is a single rose, and all I've ever gotten is thorns, 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 right? And so they do 
uh, little examples of how mental illness causes certain thought patterns. They did that for a long time. Till somebody, the light bulb went on over their head, and they said, wait a minute. Maybe it's the stinking thinking that causes mental illness. Mm. And thus, cognitive therapy was born. Since cognitive therapy started, probably the most important contribution is that the cognitive therapists have developed patterns of thinking that make us happy, healthy, and whole. Now, the counterpoint to that is is that they've also recognized that there are certain patterns of thinking that make us sick or sad or frightened. Mm. And so basically what happened was is that the whole thing changed. I realized that in the public the people are still thinking about a couch where you talk about whether or not mom liked your sister best, but that doesn't have much to do with modern psychotherapy. It's almost all cognitive behavioral now. As a matter of fact, there are some insurance companies that won't even pay for what is called standard insight therapy. They'll only pay for cognitive behavioral therapy because uh, from the insurance company's point of view, it's more effective and it takes less time, so it costs them less money. But that is um, kind of a, a brief history of getting up to the idea of cognitive therapy. Now, cognitive therapy started, oh, in the 60s, let's say. And it stayed that way. They developed all kinds of techniques. And sure enough, they developed that there was a considerable amount of efficacy in teaching people, training people's brains to think in certain patterns but they didn't know why it worked. They didn't know the science behind it. And then in the 1990s, they discovered what is called neuropeptides. Listen close to this, Fred, because this is one of the most astounding things I know about how brain and emotions interact. Every thought we think produces emotional chemicals called neuropeptides. Those neuropeptides cascade through the the system in less than a second from the time you think the thought. Sam, what what is a peptide? Could you uh, just explain? uh, I know you're not a a scientist, but is it a protein? Is it a... uh, is it a sugar, or what's going on there? It, it's a neuropeptide. Peptides are a, a category of almost hormones, but they're similar. Um, they're, they're, what they do is they, they are the way that cells communicate with one another. Neuropeptides, wow. neuropeptides are the way that... Um, nerve cells that have to do with the brain communicate with one another. Now, the reason these neuropeptides are so important is that when this happens, when these neuropeptides cascade through the body, they affect every cell in the body. Now, when you think, stinking thinking, Mm. what happens is 
Those neuropeptides that are the result of that stinking thinking cascade through your physiology, and you can you can feel it. You can experience it. We can we can get. Matter of fact, I'll do this. I'll give you, your staff, and our listeners a chance to actually prove this to yourselves. Think for an instance. We all have moments in our lives where we think it was perfect. Um, when we fell in love, many women report when that baby's finally put in their arms after uh, childbirth. For me, the one that always counts is the time I got to play with the big kids and I hit a home run. Uh, There are perfect moments like that. Now, if you'll just take a second and think about those perfect moments in your life, you'll start to feel the neuropeptides affecting your senses. You start feeling good. When I do this with clients, a smile starts coming over their face when they start thinking about these perfect moments in their life. Now that you've done that, think for a minute about the worst things that ever happened to you. No, don't do that, please. That was I, I don't want you thinking about that, but oh. did you feel the almost instantaneous shift in emotional countenance when you shifted from things that make me happy to the worst things that ever happened in my life. You can feel... It, it, was like, it was like hitting your head against a brick wall there, Stan. Yes. And, you know, if anybody doubts the effects of neuropeptides and the doubts of thinking on on um, what's going on with you physiologically and, the, and the, has any doubts about whether or not thinking causes emotions, all they have to do is conduct that little experiment with themselves and it's quite clear what it is that's going on. Now, that's the fundamental premise of cognitive therapy. That what we think shows up in what it is we feel. Now, that's true of individual thought, and that was kind of what our little experiment was about, was individual thought. But what's more important is patterns of thinking. If you have patterns of thinking, guess what? Those patterns of thinking end up being your emotional patterns. So if you're to go to a cognitive therapist, the cognitive therapist will administer some diagnostics, find out what the patterns of thinking are that you have on a regular basis. He knows what those patterns of thinking are mean when translated into emotions. So he's pretty much able to tell you what your emotions are without you having to tell him because he can see what the thinking is so he knows what the emotions are. So once we get that established, what kind of emotions are um, dominating this person's emotional life, what you do then is you start putting together cognitive alternatives to that kind of thinking. Those cognitive alternatives uh, have a kind of a, oh, what would I call it, a theme to them. There are three things that a cognitive therapist wants to train his patients to do. First, make sure that your self-talk, Fred, you know what I mean when I say self-talk? 
self-taught. Uh, self self-talk. Yeah. No, self- no, no, I don't. No, I don't. Self-talk. That's all those voices in your head. Okay. No, you're really yeah. not crazy, Fred. Everybody has those voices. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the self-talk are the things you say to yourself when situations go on. Mm-hmm. My wife's uh, late coming home from the grocery store, and the self-talk is um, she's been in an automobile accident or she's having an affair. Now, the minute I have that self-talk, what happens to my emotions? I start getting anxious, don't I? Oh, my God, yeah. Now, that's what self-talk is. It's all of the kinds of things going on in your head, and people do not realize that self-talk is what dominates the creation of your emotional life. Hmm. So the first advice that a good psychotherapist is going to give his clients is make sure that your self-talk is rational. Now, a lot of people don't know what rational means because they didn't take a logic course in college. So I usually tell them, look, just be accurate with your self-talk. Stay away from extreme comments. Stay away from adjectives. Adjectives are basically what causes extra or unnecessary emotion. In other words, dispense with the melodrama. Let me give you an example. If I were to tell you that I had a horrendous day today, that creates a different emotion than if I say I had a challenging day today. And the challenging day is actually a more accurate comment. Horrendous? No, I didn't have a horrendous day. I came home, had a nice dinner, my wife hugged me, and now I'm talking to you. So it's just I had a challenging day. Now that's the one of the big things that goes on, that there's this this thought pattern that that tends to be melodramatic, and that's where the adjectives come in. If you have a lot of adjectives in your language, you're quite likely to have a lot of emotions. Let me give you an example of that on the national level. As you know, there are kind of stereotypes for different nationalities. For instance, think of those nationalities that have a reputation for being the most emotional. If you check their languages, they have far more adjectives in their language than uh, cultures that that have a reputation for being sort of low-keyed. Let me give you an example of that that's specific. The so-called Latin languages or Romance languages, sometimes they're called. Um, the people that speak that way are Italians, you know, those folks that can't talk without waving their arms around. Uh, the Spanish, the Mexicans, uh, the Cubans, they tend to be emotionally volatile. And there's a reason for that. It's part of their culture. Now, let's switch over to um, Scandinavia. The Scandinavians are known as pretty low-key people. They don't have a lot of emotions. We have a book here at the house that's entitled Scandinavian Humor and Other Myths. <laughs> now, 
talent. Now that that and and the thing is, they are sort of that way. As a matter of fact, if you um, look at the literature, and for that matter, even the philosophers like Soren Kierkegaard, they come out of that Scandinavian tradition. You'll find out there's a significant, a palpable, a a discernible difference in the countenance of people that come out of those cultures. And what mm-hmm. you can track it back to is how many adjectives are in their language. Now, just let me just see if you can guess, or if any of your staff can guess. What, what group of people do you think has the most adjectives in their language? French. Uh, That's a good one. Any guesses? I would say the Italians. No, uh, I can understand why you'd say that, but the Italians have no more than um, the Spanish or the French. But and it's, the minute I say it, oh, you'll know oh, 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 wait, wait. I, I, uh, well, how about the, <clears throat> the Palestinians? Okay. That's a bit. That's a bit narrow. The Semitic languages. Semitic. Okay, I was going to say in that in that area. Okay, got and it. you're exactly right. And it isn't. And it isn't just the Arabs. The Jews are the same way. They have that same kind of language. Okay. And it's one of the reasons why the literature in the Bible is so beautiful. It's because of that that language as an art form. Let me put it this way. Those people were nomads. When you're a nomadic people, that does not mean that you don't have creativity. There's another thing that people get wrong. They think that somehow intelligent people are new on the planet. No. Uh, IQs determined by DNA and modern human DNA is at least 100,000 years old and probably more meaning that we were as bright 100,000 years ago as we are today. So those four or 5,000 years ago, these nomad, nomads were following their flocks wherever it is they went. That does not mean that they did not have art forms. It's just that you can't pack up the Venus de Milo on the back of your camel and expect to, to have your art of your culture show up that way. So guess where it showed up? It showed up in their languages. That's where creativity took place in those ancient peoples that had not yet established a civilization. They were still nomadic. And so the Semitic languages end up being not only the most beautiful languages, but the most volatile. When you know that, when you know that, it's not all that surprising anymore why the Jews and the Arabs have never been able to get along. They don't know how to talk to each other. They only know how to holler at each other <laughs> and use expletives and full of melodrama and full of um, adjectives. That's the, and you'll, and you'll, this is true of all of the nations on the planet. It's also true of the individuals. Those persons who habitually have more adjectives in their, uh, their their personal vocabulary are people who are going to have more emotions than other folks. 
And, of course, the job of a cognitive therapist is to help people do self-talk that doesn't have adjectives or has appropriate adjectives. You do accurate self-talk. Now, the next skill that the therapist tries to teach his people is that you need to be emotionally appropriate. If there's a one-pound problem, please, let's have a one-pound emotional response. Now, if you do the rational or accurate self-talk, that almost always results in appropriate emotions. But you'll, you'll also be trained to look at your emotions and see how strong they are and then check what was the self-talk that started that emotion. And you go back and you try to say, was it accurate? Was it rational? And frequently you can manage the mood you're experiencing by doing no, nothing but going back to uh, analyzing whether or not you're thinking rationally or accurately. Now, the third area that the therapist wants to train his people about has to do with solution-focused thinking. Now, this is very difficult, Fred. Here's the reason it's difficult. We're not put together that way naturally. We are put together instinctually to always be looking out for danger. Mm-hmm. So we have a natural tendency to notice what's wrong or what's bad or what's dangerous. In other words, almost even people that can't read music can pick out a sour note. There's a reason why we slow down when there's a traffic accident and crane our necks to try and see what happened. Another example I use is that, you know that lobby of the Louvre in Paris where the Mona Lisa hangs? Mm-hmm. If there's a snake crawling across the floor, nobody's going to be looking at the Mona Lisa. That's the way we human beings are. We have a natural tendency to look for what's wrong. But there's a reason for that, the survival. It's a survival instinct. Keep in mind, there was a time when we had to look out for a saber-toothed tiger on the way to get water. So being aware of what the danger or the negative part might be is really important. But if you're going to manage your life in modern times, think of this. An instinct that has to do with your facing saber-toothed tigers shows up when the bag boy puts your hot chicken in with your ice cream. (laughs) And then then you have a completely... Uh, irrational, primitive response. <laughs> now, so what we need to actually train ourselves to be able to do is to do solution-focused thinking. And that's the most difficult part of cognitive therapy because you have to actually counter your instincts in order to do solution-focused thinking. So those are the three primary tools of a cognitive therapist. They train their clients to think rationally and accurately. They train them to be aware of their emotions and make sure that their emotions are appropriate to the circumstance they find themselves in, and they train them to be solution-focused. 
Now, there's a lot more to it than that. But the important thing to remember about these skills that I just discussed is that all of them impact the production of these emotional chemicals called neuropeptides. And when you use your thinking to be in charge of the creation of these neuropeptides in the brain so that the emotions being produced by these emotional chemicals are appropriate to the circumstances that you find yourself in and that they are consistently the kind of emotional chemicals that make you happy, healthy, and whole. Now, the good news is that this is a highly effective style of psychotherapy. It works with almost everybody. It is a huge help to people who have struggled with anxiety or depression or anger or any number of other emotions that you could name over years and caused Mm -hmm. themselves and all of their loved ones uh, untold suffering. And it really does work. Matter of fact, it's one of the reasons that I stay in this. I probably should have retired a long time ago, but I get so much out of it. I love watching one of my clients just blossom right in front of my eyes. And it's a wonderful thing. So the whole, if you've got a good cognitive behavioral therapist, I don't care what your cognitive problem is or what your mood management problem is, it's going to make a significant improvement. All right. Now that's the that's where I got started in taking a look at this this thing about come to think of it. How huh? is that? Um, I knew the science behind cognitive therapy. I knew about neuropeptides. That talk about a huge light bulb going on when back in the nineties the research on neuropeptides came up, all of us cognitive therapists suddenly understood why it was we were doing actually worked. So that was how I got started with thinking about how important cognitive uh, content is. You kind of mentioned that um, a little bit earlier, or maybe it was when I was in the pre-show with uh, one of your staff, But it's so important to realize that the quality of your life is determined by the kind of thinking that you're doing. There's no way around that. And once you get that idea, you realize that you need to be careful. Some ancient philosopher, I can't remember who it was, talked about that the brain is like a garden and you need to make sure that you're constantly weeding it. Because, yes, indeed, ideas that are unworthy of you, ideas that will cause you all kinds of emotional problems, will indeed try to take root in your mind. So constantly weeding the cognitive content of your brain is really important for your own mental, and now here comes the next part, your physical health. Part two, for any of you who are keeping track of the four parts that I'm doing here, this is where part two comes in. Of course what happens is when you're releasing emotional chemicals into your body and they affect every cell in your body, 
guess what that means? That means that we can literally think ourselves sick or think ourselves well. In other words, our patterns of thinking do not just affect our emotions. They affect our physical well-being. Now, everyone, I think, has heard the cliché about businessmen have ulcers because of stress. Well, does stress cause ulcers? You're darn right it does, but boy, is that underselling an idea. Stress causes emotional and physical problems in almost every area you can imagine. Ask any doctor who's a you know medical doctor um, whether or not the condition that you are dealing with is influenced by stress. They're going to almost always say yes. Stress levels affect almost everything that we are physiologically. So those patterns of thinking that we do that cause us uncomfortable emotions, those same patterns of thinking will ruin our physical health. So we don't just have how do we manage moods. We need to say how can we make our brain contribute to our physical health rather than cause health problems. And there's a lot of research on this subject. Like, for instance, I I don't know whether any of you pay attention to this field or not, but there's even a difference in, in whether or not you're likely to have um, a physical illness depending on whether or not you're an optimist or a pessimist. Imagine that for a minute. If you're a pessimist, you're going to get sicker than optimists. And that doesn't, that makes sense. I mean, that doesn't even have anything to do with whether or not you're factually correct. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes the pessimists are factually correct. But thinking that way makes them sick, <laughs> even though they're factually accurate. Now, that, that, and it's not just that. There's a whole. It's, let me put it this way: there's an entire field of medical research that has to do with what attitudes cause what diseases, or to put it more accurately, what attitudes make you prone to what kind of diseases. Wow! So knowing that is just incredibly important. But there's another part to this. We talk about things being contagious. Well, usually when we think about contagious things, we think about, um, you know, penicillin and the whole idea of germs. Uh, Louis Pasteur comes to mind when you think about uh, contagion. But it's not just that. Other people's thinking, thinking can make you sick. There is such a thing as cognitive, um, the cognitive risk to contagious, um, there's a contagious influence to cognitive thinking. If your spouse consistently has certain kinds of um, thinking that aren't that isn't healthy, eventually it affects you. Sometimes your children 
will get into a particular state of mind that drives you nuts. Well, there's actually an effect that way. We have the ability to make other people in our lives sick because our stinking thinking is contagious. Let me give you one, I think, of one of the most important pieces of research on that particular subject. It was not a surprise to researchers to find out that children that had been abused or neglected, that that abuse and neglect had an effect on their mental and physical health. We'd kind of expect that. But then what they did uh, was research on the anger or the stinking thinking wasn't even aimed at the child. All the child had to do was observe mommy and daddy fighting, and their brain chemistry was permanently altered unless there was a therapeutic intervention at a later date. Now, when your grandma told you don't fight in front of the kids, grandma didn't know that, but it's now scientifically validated that what we do in front of our children affects them mentally and physiologically in a way that can last a lifetime. Now, this is one of the things I always say to my couples. We do a, Because my wife and I run the clinic together, uh, we do mm-hmm. a lot of marriage and family counseling. It's just that it, it fits. We've got you know, a wife and a husband doing marriage and family counseling. I will admit that my wife's a bit unique in that regard. Uh, people come in and they they start trying to find um, empathetic support, and they find that my wife is telling them things like, where's your homework? Why haven't you done what it is we asked you to do? And I'm the one that uses up as many Kleenex as the, <laughs> as the clients. So... We have kind of a, a gender reversal in the roles, but the clients quickly catch on that if they want uh, sympathy and empathy, they better talk to Sam rather than talking to Bunny. <laughs> anyway, knowing that physiology is also connected to this whole thing about cognition, that's vitally important to understand that. Now, Let's take this one step further. I like to ratchet this up another notch. I want to start talking about physics. This is really important to understand. We know that our thinking affects our moods. We know that our thinking affects our physical health. Our thinking affects reality as we experience it, Fred. Our thinking actually has an impact on the reality that we experience. Basically what it boils down to, the fundamental conclusion of the so-called new physics is that the observer creates the reality. As observers, we are personally involved with the creation of our own reality. Physicists nowadays, um, the old physicists, are being forced to admit that the universe is more of a mental construction. In other words, 
the stream of knowledge in physics is heading toward a non-mechanical reality. It is not a physical universe. The universe begins to look much more like a big idea than a big thing. The mind no longer appears to be an accidental intruder into the realm of physical matter. It ought rather be the creator and the governor of the realm of matter. So it's really important for us to understand that the universe is immaterial and mental and spiritual rather than physiological. Now, how in the world can you make that kind of a, oh, what would I call it? Boy, talk about a bold proclamation that the universe is a big idea instead of a, a big physical entity? Um, there's more to it that we'll talk about in the last part. If I get to that, I may need to come back for that part of it. But here's basically what it boils down to, is that there is this thing beyond the physical. We need to be able to look beyond the physical. I got a little quotation from Nikola Tesla. The day science begins to study non-physical phenomenon, it will make more progress in one decade than it has all of the previous centuries of its existence. And Tesla was right about that, and he's replied about about a whole bunch of other things. He's one of my my personal heroes. Um, But it's really important to understand that this whole idea of... Let me explain what metaphysics means. It's a Greek word, and it just means above the physical or beyond the physical or behind the physical. That's what metaphysics means. So it's sort of um, the, the the branch of metaphysics, uh, cosmology and ontology, for instance, are traditional branch, branches of metaphysics. Cosmology is the branch of astrophysics that studies the universe as a totality, as a phenomenon in space and time. And ontology is the philosophical study of the nature of being. What what is what do we mean when we say being, experience or reality in general? Now there's a whole bunch of scientific studies or scientific experiments. Have you ever Fred, have you ever heard of the so called double slit experiment? No. No. Basically what it it boils down to is things are, at the subatomic level, are energy or matter depending on whether or not they are being observed. Think about that for a second. You can have a a bunch of waves which are non-tangible, not matter, and a human being comes along to observe the waves, waves, and suddenly they're not waves anymore. Now they're particles. And they switched from waves to particles because the human being observed it. Our consciousness, our that little consciousness generator we have between our ears, has the influence to change matter to change energy into matter. 
Now, if you'll think about it for a second, we kind of know about that because almost everybody knows about Einstein's famous equation, E equals MC squared. Basically, what he's saying is that um, energy is that matter is nothing but thick energy, all right? Concentrated energy. Like, for instance, if you're going to talk about H2O, H2O can be solid, ice, liquid, water, or steam as a gas. Mm-hmm. But, it's still, but it's still H2O. Mm-hmm. And so energy, and let me put it this way. If you had um, a piece of matter, say the size of a bouillon cube, um, you could take out most of Chicago if all of the energy in that bouillon cube was released. That's how much concentrated energy there is in matter. You would be surprised if you talked about nuclear fission or nuclear fusion, in other words, atomic or hydrogen bombs. You would be amazed at the small amount of matter that is actually converted to energy. It's a very small amount. What what is left over uh, is other other elements are left over, and the vast majority of the results from a fusion experience is that there's uh, almost, it's only like, I think it's like 4% of the matter is involved in a fusion uh, event. So a very small amount of matter is involved in creating all of that explosion. Anyway, that so we know that physics is already proven in a number of different ways that energy and matter are interchangeable. Now, what that means is, is that they are variables. Energy can be matter; matter can be called ener- become energy. Let me do another kind of experiment that's pretty simple. Believe it or not, you can do this yourself. I did this experiment when I was a sophomore in high school, won a science fair contest for it. It's building a Wilson cloud chamber, it's called. You create an atmosphere inside a bell jar, and you can't actually see particles passing through it, but you can see contrails. In other words, the atmosphere inside this bell jar is so constituted that you can see particles passing through it, and you can also see energy waves. And if you sit there and watch it, you can watch a wave enter the Wilson cloud chamber as a wave and depart as a particle, and you can watch the reverse. It enters as a particle and departs as a wave. So it's entirely possible at the subatomic level to have energy and matter being interchangeable. This is for for any of your people who actually are interested in physics or maybe are um, amateur. By the way, I should make it clear that I'm an amateur physicist. I don't have a degree in physics. I'm just an interested layman. But there is um, a, a way of looking at it that has to do with It's called the Heisenberg Principle of Uncertainty. 
basically what that boils down to is that all scientific experiment experiments are uncertain because the experimenter is influencing the experiment. There's no way to have an objective scientific experiment because the presence of the experimenter affects the experiment. So our whole scientific collection of knowledge is based on a rough approximation of science because we don't really know what the objective thing is because we do know that the individual um, experimenter is influencing the experiment, and that's true everywhere. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a chance here and tell a physics joke. Uh, physics jokes are not uh, you know, widely spread, but here's how many Heisenbergs does it take to screw in a light bulb? Well, if you know how many, then you don't know where the light bulb is. Now, I realize that will make a lot of sense to most people, but to all of those people that are in physics, they're now rolling on the floor. That's a very funny joke. <laughs> all right. Oh, I got another physics joke that almost everybody could get. Um, an atom walks into a bar, and he says to the bartender, I think I lost an electron in here last night. And the bartender <laughs> said, are you sure? And the atom says, yes, I'm positive. <laughs> oh, good. Oh, I got, good. hey, I love this program. I got people that laugh at one of my <laughs> physics jokes. Okay. <laughs> All right. Now, now, Sam, now, now, Sam, you're 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 gonna. Uh, I just give you a warning on time, and I don't want you to, you know, uh, uh, Sherry Field Jackson will be calling in about five or ten after ten, so that just uh, and if she does call, we'll we'll acknowledge her, but uh, we want you to uh, be comfortable in, in closing out the hour at the same. Yeah, time. I'm I actually I'm <laughs> keeping track of that because I'm sitting okay. on my computer and. I'm watching the time tick by, and what it looks like is that I'm going to get about half of this entire lecture covered in the hour, Okay. and I'll come back and finish it up with, uh, because I'm not going to have a chance to finish the physics part of it, the part about how consciousness affects the reality that we live in, um, but... Uh, and then, then again, to... she she may not call in. She may yeah, be distracted by her her her, her own because uh, she's in a, she's in a meeting right now, uh, so it, it, it could be delayed. So I, I just yeah. want you to be comfortable with the prospect of that happening, or maybe it won't happen. So it just yeah, because so you have you have fifteen minutes either way. If she doesn't come, you've got more than fifteen. But if she does, okay. we'll acknowledge her and then you can wrap it up, right, Fred? Because it's only yep. five. Just okay. Yeah. All right. Um. You know that television program, um, what do they call it? It's that black actor who hosts it, a science program. Oh, doggone it, I can't think of the name of the program right now. But they did a, a, a series, uh, or did a, an, ind- a, an individual uh, program called um, the Sixth Sense. It was a bad timing, uh, bad title. Okay. Um, because it was a lot more than that. 
but it had to do with how can we measure this effect. Uh, Let me see here. Yeah, Morgan Freeman is the guy that does that program. Um, You may have watched it. It's on the Science Channel. It's uh, Through the Wormhole. I don't know if you've ever watched it or not, but I watch it on a regular basis. But what he was what what they were doing was taking a look at various experiments to validate that there is this impact of human consciousness on reality as we experience it. Now I need to be very careful here. The The brain, the human brain, may be a consciousness-generating device, but it's pretty puny. Or to say it metaphorically, um, the gates of heaven will not be knocked down by such a puny tool as the human brain. So, But that doesn't mean, and the problem here is, is that old-fashioned science would not accept the reality that the human brain has the ability to affect the universe. Now we know better. There's any number of studies that have been done that show that that influence is there. It may be small, but there isn't any doubt that it exists. And I'll tell you one of the best ones. Um, There was a guy at Duke University. I'll think of his name here in a minute. J.B. Ryan was his name. He wanted to prove... Uh, ESP. He knew that he he believed that there was that ESP was real. That there was this effect that the human mind is able to have in all kinds of different ways when it comes to the human brain interacting with uh, reality. And so what he did was he started putting together students that would constantly roll dice for hours on end. <laughs> and they had, and because that's a random thing, and then what they'd do is they'd tell the observers that were watching this, do what you can about making seven come up more often than it would randomly. Well, well wait, 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 repeat that again. What he would do is he'd have the observers, all of these students would be rolling dice, and he yeah. would have the observer of this particular experience saying, I want you to try with your mind to make the number seven come up more often than it would randomly. Okay, this is a third-party observer observing the students roll the dice, stating that. Okay, got it. Trying to find out, is it possible for an individual human being to will an outcome of of a random event? Okay, what happened? Well... He got pretty good results out of that, except that the cynics said, well, you can't really do that because you've got too many too many influences on the people rolling the dice and all kinds of things like that. So he invented a machine that would roll the dice <laughs> to get the human to get the human element out of it. And lo and behold, they got about the same results. A Isn't student that- a student would sit there beside the machine and try to make a num- particular number come up that was more often than it would randomly. Yeah. And time after time after time, they got those results. But the conventional scientists still resisted the idea. 
Now, come along the computer age. What happened is they now have what are called random number generators. They're computers that do nothing but generate random numbers. And you set your subject down next to the computer and you say, can you make a number pop up more often on the computer gener- the computer generation of random numbers than it would otherwise? And time after time after time, they are able to prove that the human mind is able to interact with that computer uh, uh, random number generator and make a number come up more often than random. Now, more often than random, I know, look, it's huge. It's a huge scientific breakthrough. But don't overdo it. Uh, Don't get to thinking that you can think your way into winning the lottery or other things like that. And at the, when I get to the end of this, I'm going to be talking about theology. Keep in mind that God's in charge of the universe, not you. And so, so if you're trying to make something happen with your brain that God is not um, and signed on to, it ain't going to happen. Not only that, keep, keep in mind there's 7 billion other people on the earth that might have a different idea on how things could turn out, and their consciousness is involved as well. So it isn't like it's some sort of revolution of hands-on metaphysics where we can actually will our way into a new jaguar or anything like that, but there isn't any doubt that the phenomenon exists and is scientifically demonstrated. We have the ability with our minds to affect reality as we know it on the cosmic level. I mean, I'm not just talking that you can, it's easier to understand that what we think affects our emotions. We'd kind of even expect that. It's also not that hard to believe that our thinking would affect our physical health. That kind of checks out too. But when you say that the human brain can actually affect the nature of the cosmos, the nature of everything, That is indeed difficult. Now, what I'm going to do here is I'm going to wrap this up because I'm going to leave it at an hour. Mm -hmm. Uh, And what I'm going to do is kind of preview what's coming next. Okay, Okay, let me me break in real quick here and just acknowledge Sherry uh, Peel-Jackson on the line with us. And Sherry, we're glad to see you, and our guest is going to round up, and then we'll, we'll get to you. So I just wanted to let you guys know she was there. So, so go ahead, Sam. Please please finish with what you have lined up there. We're anxious to hear. <laughs> okay, here's the next thing. I'm going to do some more about the quantum physics and the human mind because there's a lot more to that. But eventually I'm going to get to a theological premise. And here's the theological premise I'm going to lay out there so that I can tease all of you to think about it until I come back next time. When Moses asked God what his name was, God responded, and it's translated in English, as I am that I am. Now what that means is is don't try to put God in a category. God doesn't have a name. God cannot be objectified and turned into a thing. But the word that is reported in the Bible, the Hebrew word for God's name, is a verb not a noun. 
God's nature is sacred activity, not a sacred thing. What that means is is that we all live in the razor-thin sacred moment of now that is all held in place by divine consciousness. It is the mind of God that supports all of reality. And when you think about that, that makes this influence of consciousness on the cosmos a lot more believable. And we'll talk about that next time we get together. Sam, Sewell, thank you so much. Uh, we're going to have to have you back sooner, maybe maybe even next week, Sam, because uh, uh, we're going to share this archival link with, with all of our community. But this is a really, really important topic, and uh, I think all of us, probably in conversation when you come back on will want to ask questions and share uh, their own experiences our own experiences because uh, a lot of this rings true with me personally have you got a have you got a counter on that archive uh you know uh, steve's son could find the counter i i don't know how to find it but uh uh, you know, somebody on your staff knows how to yeah. count how many hits yeah, yeah. you have yeah. archive, right? Okay. Steve, Steve, Steve can address that. Yeah. Okay. We're going to send out. We're going as soon as I know what the archive is. We're going to send it out as well to our contacts, and we'll see what kind of influence we have on your listenership. We'll okay. Sam, thank you so much, Sam Stool, ladies and gentlemen. This has been a great first hour of the call. Uh, Sam, we'll have you back on. Uh, uh, perhaps next week, if not sooner, okay? Or, or okay, thank every, thanks, everybody. God bless. Thank you, thank Sam. You. Say hi to Bye-bye. for all of us. Bye-bye. Good night. All right, moving right along. Boy. I, <laughs> yeah, that's great. Uh, that's really good. Uh, you know, uh, Sherry Pill Jackson, everyone, is a very familiar name to a lot of us because she threads and connects through to Aaron Russo the movie uh, documentary America, Freedom of Fascism, which we all got behind. And it was a very, very heady time for so many people, not not just uh, here in America, but all over the world. That documentary awakened so many people. And um, Sherry played a key role. She was interviewed in that movie. Uh, behind the scenes, I connected uh, with, with Sherry, uh, Joe Bannister, and the likes of other people who marched all with all of us and Bob Schultz at the People Foundation for Constitutional Education many, many years ago. Uh, Sherry, thank you for coming on. I've met you a couple of times in person. A shout-out to Rose Lear. I don't know if she's on the call, but uh, I'm sure she's thinking of you in, in a very positive light. Uh, you are doing some of the same kinds of things. Sam Sewell, our first guest, has done motivational speaking, uh, helping people, all over the country, all over the world, uh, feel more empowered, more financially successful and aware. And uh, you still carry some of the same uh, vim and vinegar that you, you had in years past, but there's this big spiritual uh, component as well. So, Sherry, thank you for coming on. How's, how's everything down south? right now. I'm sure it's a lot warmer than up here in Chicago. It's like 18 degrees up here, or 17. Yeah, yeah Fred, thanks for having me on the show. It's uh, about 38 degrees here, and we consider oh, that's that cold. cold. That's cold, man. Yes, yes. <laughs> it's, in the, it's in the 70s here in West Texas. 
Oh, wow. Well. Tomorrow, oh, we hit 55 tomorrow, and then we dip back down. So Atlanta weather is very interesting. You can get changes every three days. Okay, there you go. Well, well uh, thank you again, Sherry, for, for, for coming on. Uh, you had the uh, just, you know, just I, I feel so uh, all of us, that were, were marching with Bob Schultz many years ago. There was, a, there was heavy prices that we all paid in various ways with our time, with our, you know, family situations, our, our personal friendships and everything else. But things keep moving on. And uh, we're in a kind of a different uh, place right now. The, the political system, the process is going to do what it's going to do. The financial system is going to do what it's going to do. But, um, there's certain things that you're doing to bring awareness and bring hope and bring health and uh, success to people. Tell us what you're up to right now. Well, I am basically teaching people what they need to know. I, 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 of course, did a lot of soul searching and looking at the world, looking at our country, and figured out that a lot of, a lot of time is being wasted on things that don't matter. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that I call the television is the electronic income reducer and the mm-hmm. electronic intellect reducer because that's what it's doing. Too many mm-hmm. people are coming home from work, plopping themselves down on couches and staying from the television until they fall asleep. And mm-hmm. that's what the powers to be want people to do. That's not what we should be doing. We should be attempting to escape the rat race, first of all. You can't do that if you're clicking the remote control or playing the video game. You're going to continue to be a slave. One of the things that a little poster kind of thing that I have in my office is a picture of some slaves in a cotton field. There are about nine slaves, and and there's a a toddler out there also. And Mm -hmm. at the top of it, it says slavery. And at the bottom of it, it says, if stealing 100% of the product of someone's labor is slavery, at what percentage is it not slavery? And I I firmly believe that we're all slaves because at least 51% of our resources are being taken away. If you look at the federal, the state, you look at the sales tax, you look at all, when you look at your telephone bill, your electric bill, all of these fees and taxes are taken out, and people don't realize that, you have a silent partner in your bed with you that you don't want. Mm-hmm. And in order to get out of that rat race, in order to get out of that bed, you have to take action. And it's not action with your thumb. It's action with your brain. So what I did is I wrote a book called How to Escape the Rat Race, Four Keys to Acquire the Life of Your Dreams. Mm-hmm. I also wrote a book called how to Stick It to the IRS, Confessions from a Former Insider. And both mm-hmm. these books are leading to the same place, leading people to a place of empowerment in their financial lives, in their health, in their physical life, because all of it's tied in, all of it's tied in. And I've seen documentaries that basically say the poor people have the worst health because they are not in a position to purchase the foods that are going to get their bodies together. So if you're if you're mm-hmm. if you're poor, 
or if your finances are low or if you're not paying attention to your finances, you're going to be eating at McDonald's and Burger King and places like that. Wealthy people don't eat those places. You know, so all of it ties together. So I am doing workshops all over the country, and they're called Escape the Rat Race and Stick It to the IRS. The next one that's coming up is going to be in Tampa, Florida on the 21st of this month, and that's a Sunday, and it's the only one that I have on a Sunday and because I was already going to be in Tampa and decided oh, wow. to go ahead and do that. You know, I was, I'm going to be in Tampa on, on other business, but I took that Sunday, the 21st, and I'm going to do that seminar. And it's an all-day seminar, all-day intensive seminar. They get sherry time. They get to answer questions, those kinds of things. And the next two are going to be in Atlanta, Saturday, February 27th, and Saturday, March 12th. Same thing, escape the rat race and stick it to the IRS. And the next two that are scheduled are going to be in Chino Hills, California. Oh, wow. April 2nd. That's a Saturday, and Friday, April 8th. So I'm just lining up. I'm single now. I'm 53 years old. I don't have any kids at home, and uh-huh. I feel like it's my time to get out there and try to help people understand what they need to understand, shake it off, get out of the matrix, and leave the rat race and stick it to the IRS, keeping their money for themselves and their families. The information about those seminars is at spjevents.com. Those are my okay. initials. S is in Sherry, P is in Peel, J is in Jackson. SPJEvents.com. So, and my my uh, attorney, Max McPherson, is going to be speaking at the two events in Chino Hills because he lives out in that area. Oh, and wow. he, I asked him. I said, Mac, will you speak? He's going to talk about criminal tax cases, and we're going to have a ball out there in Chino Hills. The other ones are going to be great too. But Mac will be able to speak out in California at those two, April second and eighth. <clears throat> Sherry, we miss Aaron Russo. He passed away, as we all know, in 2007, too early. Uh, and uh, so much has happened since then. Uh, the economy falling apart a year later, and, and we're still kind of in the same mire, the same muck. And as you said, uh, the bottom line is we're all slaves. How can we get this understanding and this awareness to where we acknowledge that we are under this 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 burden that and this force this matrix whatever you want to call this because uh, it's it is programming you're we're up against programming by uh, the programmers in, in such a vast big massive way through TV through radio through our uh, the food that we eat the water we drink. Uh, I mean, a lot of us that have been at this for many years, I mean, me personally, I, I did not realize when I started that this was as dark and as deep and as just diabolical at its root, at its core. It, it really is. And uh, you, you almost have to have a sense of humor or at least uh, try to be more light about uh, things because you could drive yourself to a really negative state if if, if you focus too much on the negatives. That's true. We we know there's a hope out there. I'm one of those hardline Christians that believe that God is in total control and nothing happens without um, him letting it happen. But mm-hmm. one of the 
one of the main problems and the question that you asked me about making people aware, uh, one of my favorite quotes is by Harriet Tubman. She said, I freed a thousand slaves. I could have freed a thousand more if only they knew they were slaves. Yeah. These people don't know they're slaves, and you really can't help people that don't want to be helped. So until a person's mind opens up to the fact that they are slaves, then we can't help them. So I I have streamlined my psychology, the way I operate. I talk to people, and I get a sense of whether or not they understand where they are. And if they don't, I have to keep it moving because I can't Mm -hmm. drag people along. I have to talk to people that have a sense of there's something wrong here, and I would like to know what it is. Those are the ones that I like to teach and train. So mm-hmm. when you when you get a group of people together that understands that something is wrong with their lives, why is it? The questions that they ask are something like, why is it that I went to school and I've got this big loan, but I can't find a job, and I'm as a teller at the bank next to a person with a high school diploma, and I have an $80,000 student loan and a college degree? Those questions are starting to come up more and more, and those are the people that want to want answers. So there are answers. There are solutions to the problem to get people out of that situation where they're in the matrix or matrix or they're running the rat race. And the, the, but the key to that, Fred, is they have to want to change. I have a low tolerance for ignorance. I don't like to listen to people complain about where they are in life and. You know, I walk into their house and they have seven flat screen TVs. That's just not going to work for me because mm-hmm. I know that talk is cheap. My dad used to always say that I could not, he would not let me complain to him. He would say, if you don't like where you are at point A, go to point B. I don't want to hear any complaining. So when people mm-hmm. are complaining constantly, I will at least offer some solutions. But if they don't take the solutions, I have to move on because it. I I can't, let my my time and my mind be drained by those who just talk. Talk is cheap. Mm-hmm. Wow. Now, Sherry, your kids have flown the coop. They're gone. They've grown up, right? Yes, I am an empty nester and a Grammy now. My son oh. is in grad school in international business. My daughter, my, and he's working a part-time job. My daughter is an undergrad, and she's working a part-time job, and she has an 18-month-old, Anna. Call her Hurricane Anna because she left the house about – she was with me today. I picked her up from her daycare, and she she went through this house like a tornado. You should see it. Papers everywhere. She was just giggling while she was just pushing all the papers off the table and all her toys everywhere. And she wasn't here but two hours, but she left the house looking like a hurricane, so – but she's a uh, joy. She really is a, a joy to be a grandmother. It really is. So, yes, my children, I'm an empty nester now. And the Lord has has always had me in a position where he, he, he gave me the gift of numbers. And now he's showing me that I need to teach those that want to learn how to escape the rat race, how to come into a position of wealth, because we can't help anybody if we're in the same boat. How can you help somebody if you're drowning in the same boat? Yeah. Sherry, where, where, uh, where, just philosophically, where do you think the tide, or how do you think the tide is going to turn 
to overcome. I mean, we we hear stories about what happened in Iceland. We hear stories about some things that are happening in various places around the world where people are are, are questioning the, the the existing financial system and actually, you know, demanding justice or whatever. I think Iceland's probably the the best example, but the mainstream media is not really covering what's really happening there. Is there any uh, leading edge? I mean, do you see things, these new technologies like Bitcoin? Uh, is, is there anything that you would say you could point to around the world that uh, is a sign of hope that maybe is uh, like, like a, green, a, a small green plant shooting through uh, after, after cold, dark winter? A new mm-hmm. springtime, is there an example that you could point out? Well, there are lots of little plants out there. First of all, as far as our country is concerned, you know, we've hit $19 trillion in debt. That is unsustainable, meaning that there will never mm-hmm. be enough money coming in to take care of that. So our government, our so-called leaders have been kicking the can down the road for decades, and now it's getting to the dead end. This is not going yep. to be sustainable. We will wake up one morning in a situation like Cyprus or in a situation yep. like Greenland and those other ones. It's just a matter yep. of whether the American people are going to have the backbone because they have not gotten to the point where they said enough is enough. Now, within the American population, there are those that have gotten to the point that they've said enough is enough, and they've taken action for themselves and their family. For instance, they've they start they started to purchase hard assets like real estate in other countries and gold and silver and and uh, investing in water and oil and, and those kinds of things as far as and, – and staying away from the stock market, which is just a big joke. And mm-hmm. they have – because I don't know if you've noticed, but I've seen statistics that say that, you know, as, as the last two years, we've – 300,000 people have uh, left the country. They have literally left the country, expatriated from this country. So we're so three hundred thousand people. Uh, okay, three hundred thousand people going to places like what? Like Panama? Like uh, South right. America? Where? Yeah, Ecuador, Chile. There's a there's a guy named Simon Black that used to be uh, in the military. I think he was special ops. He's got a blog site called The Sovereign Man. And he hmm. has a thousand acres down in Chile, and there are people that are moving down there. There are people that are moving to other countries, not norm, not necessarily transatlantic, but to Central and South America to, to to be able to live off the land. Because when the excrement does hit the portable cooling device, it's going to get ugly over here in the United States of America. Hmm. So individuals and groups of people have said enough is enough. I am putting a putting a plan together that when 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 it gets to a point where I'm ready to go, I'm going to go and I'm going to have this or that. And there are others that are here that says I'm not going anywhere or I don't have the wherewithal to get real estate mm-hmm. uh, in other places, but I am purchasing assets. I am building a garden in the backyard so that I can have food and those kinds of things. People need mm-hmm. to be taking action instead of looking at Dancing with the Stars or whatever the heck comes on television. Sure. I don't even... I have a I have a television, one of those big old clunkers, yeah, and yeah, I yeah. have a a Blu-ray television, a Blu-ray DVD. I watch Netflix because they have great documentaries, and I yeah. watch educational videos. Otherwise, that doesn't come on. I don't have cable, nor do I have the regular stations like NBC, CBS, because they how can how can all of them have the same story on? 
at the same time. It's, it's programming, and we need to be deprogrammed, Fred. And you, you've seen the uh, Conan skit. It wasn't a skit. It was actually a, a, a true snippet, or, or maybe I think it was like 50 snippets of newscasters all around the country reading the exact same script about the exact same story. <laughs> that should that should <laughs> that should let people know that the powers that be are all in sync together to make sure that we continue to be sheeple. I tell you, and, it was just it's <laughs> right being being led right to the slaughter, Fred. Right to yep. the slaughter. Yep. Oh my gosh. Okay. So so the. Uh, well, guys, there's so many memories, Sherry, uh, of of Aaron Russo that we all have, and we've shared them many, many times on this call over the years. Uh, memories of Bob Schultz. By the way, Bob is he, he comes back on our call periodically, you know, every few months to to say hi and to give us an update. But uh, there's still some very patient, prayerful, positive uh, people that are out there, but. It's tragic the Bundy situation out west. Can, what's your take on that, Sherry? Is that are we going to see more of the same type of triangulated, almost like uh, preemptive? They put those people in uh, a vice, and 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 there's there was no way out. Yeah, but they were still at the same time doing all they could do to protest to confront. Uh, a, a, a tyrannical, untenable situation, administratively, financially, and, and spiritually. Yeah, it, you know what? It, it, it is a tragedy. And the sad thing is there's so few people willing to stand. The rest of mm-hmm. them are looking on, shaking their hands, heads, saying, oh, what a shame. And that goes not just for those situations, but, you know, with the taxes and everything, everything that is tyrannical yeah, against us. You, yeah. You've got the, the, the faithful few that are standing up and saying enough and no more, but the majority, as long as the majority of the American people continue to be complacent about our situation, then we're going to get all these situations where uh, the government swoops in and, and does what they've done in that case. But listen to this, Fred, and this is something that I carefully thought out. Back during the Civil Rights Movement, there are two things uh-huh. that I wanted to say. Back during the Civil okay. Rights Movement, um, you know, when, when they were making the black people sit at the back of the bus, yeah, they could have held up signs and screamed and hollered and protested until they lost their voices. Mm-hmm. But what they did was decide to make an economic impact. They decided that they would no longer ride the buses. They walked, they carpooled, they rode bikes, mm-hmm. however mm-hmm. they got around. Yeah. Shut that bus company down financially. And once they realized that there was a financial impact, then there was somebody to listen. So as long as we are continuing to shovel our money into the coffers of the insidious representatives of Satan and Mm -hmm. the Federal Reserve and all these other agencies, then they're going to have the funds to do things that will shut us down. But strategically, 
protesting is what I think will work. I consider that a, a strategic protest. They voted with their feet, literally. Mm-hmm. So when we vote with our feet not to participate in the stock market because we know that it's rigged, or we vote with our feet not to participate in something that we don't believe in, then there's going to be an economic shift. One of the other mm-hmm. things that I remember during the Vietnam War, Alexander Haig, I think, was the uh, Secretary of Defense, and there were some lots of protests going on all over the country, and specifically in Washington. Somebody pulled Alexander Haig over and said, uh, Secretary Haig, you know, what do you think about all these protesters? And he was quoted as saying, let them protest as long as they pay their taxes. Now, when I heard that, that was so impactful to me because, again, I look at these people and they're screaming and hollering with these signs. And what, what they're doing on April 15th is they are giving the government the resources and the authority to do the things to them that they're hollering and screaming that they don't want done, done to them. So if we can get some kind of organized um, protest going on as far as making sure that our finances aren't going towards things that we don't want them to, to go towards, mm-hmm. then there will be some impact because talk is cheap, again, and all that screaming and hollering – and even I, I heard from somebody that that works at the CDC that you probably don't need to be hanging out where they're having protests now because they're spraying stuff on people. That I got straight from somebody from CDC, and it's right here in Atlanta. Okay. Uh, you mean spraying like chemicals, like viruses, or all of the above? Spraying like chemicals from airplanes above large protests. Okay. Okay. Wow. Well, we know they're spraying something in the skies. It's not natural. <laughs> it's been going on for too long. Well, well, well that's uh, – and, and Sherry, uh, we'll open up for comments and questions, but w- one of the things that uh, I've, and I've mentioned this many times on this call, when Aaron was doing his thing with the documentary and here in Chicago, uh, I, I had a firsthand connection in interaction with uh, people from all walks of life, all of the communities. And I was so proud and and so gratified at the amount of response and support that the black community here in Chicago gave to Aaron Russo in that documentary. They came out in droves and they were much more aware and much more knowledgeable and educated about these matters than your average white uh, suburban uh, individual. And not just white, but uh, other. So I, I was, it was there was a spiritual component that came with that awareness too. That uh, that uh, I really appreciated. We really appreciated. And Aaron certainly, uh, he bent over backwards and made connections during. Uh, he was here in Chicago three times, and we set up a a whole thing in. In a, in a black school on the south side where he actually went into the school and talked to the kids and talked to the teachers. And there's just a, there's some video that, that we've got, uh, some people have of that. But it's just a very, very special time, his interactions. Wow, that's excellent. I think a, a lot of people of color may 
that may resonate with them more because of slavery, that they understand that hey, this is something that, you know, we've been knowing about for centuries. But yep. I think it, I, it right now it's really resonating with the young people because the young people mm-hmm. are of the understanding that as these funds are taken out of their checks, specifically Social Security, they, it, yep. they won't be there for them, that it will not be there for them. And they don't want to give in to the Social Security system. But mm-hmm. they're being forced to if they have a job. So a lot of them are coming to me saying, hey, uh, teach me how to start a, a home-based business. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I have to keep this job right now because I have a student loan. However, mm-hmm. which, which, you know, today the, the new housing bubble is really the student loan bubble. I know people with yeah. $300,000 student loans trying to get PhDs and stuff and and, yeah. and young kids just getting out of a regular undergrad with $80,000 student loans, they are shackled from the from the time they walk across that stage, they have shackles put on them as they walk down. But, yeah, the, the, the younger people are the ones now that are realizing that when they look at their paycheck and see those deductions, that none of that's going to benefit them ever. So they're mm-hmm. looking for solutions also. Okay. Okay. Sherry, uh, I'm going to just open it up. Anybody out there, a comment or question for Sherry Peel Jackson, just unmute your phone, star six. Uh, feel free to say hi, to, to make a comment or pose a question if you if you so desire. Anybody out there? Sherry, I'd like to ask you a question um, about, uh, are you going to be scheduling other states for your tour, or are you waiting for people to sponsor you in the states or cities? Yes, I'm actually looking for people to sponsor me in cities, and what I mean by sponsor is find a place for me to have a meeting and help me fill the room. I like Doubletree Hotels. I like having the meetings outside of the city. Because usually if I find hotels within the city, in the downtown area, the parking's not free, so I like people to be able to come and, and do that. My um, workshops, since they're, they're long, and they we have lunch on your own, so you have about an hour and a half lunch, it needs to be a place that has plenty of restaurants around. So I love to come to Chicago. Of course not this time of year. But um, all, all it takes is somebody to help me, you know, and, you know, even if they want to donate some funds to get the hotel room. Hotel rooms vary all around the country. It's interesting. You know, here in Atlanta, oh, I can get a room for 150 or 250 Out in California, they want 750 In Dallas, they want 650 So it's just different. Yeah. So, wow. and, and sometimes I can front it and sometimes I can't front it. So sponsoring would, would entail, you know, just the help getting me there. And if you if yeah. anybody wants to sponsor me to come somewhere, just get in touch with me at Sherry Peel Jackson at gmail dot com. Okay, thank you. And do you have a charge for your event when you're yes, they 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 there are. And as a matter of fact, the events that I am and they're different based on where they are too. So the events that I'm hosting already, you can go to spjevents.com, dot com, look at what all that entails, and uh, look at the pricing on those. But they are not free events because they cost. Oh, especially sure. the hotel rooms, and I and I don't oh, have yeah. people in the rooms without some coffee and cookies. And so, yeah, they they are they. And I tell people, I said my 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 rates are a hundred dollars an hour. So technically, I should be charging at least seven or eight hundred dollars, but it's nowhere near that. 
Well, good. I hope that you can get some more sponsorship. I've sponsored events in the past. I'm not in a situation to do it at the moment, but gosh, we'd love to have you here in Portland. There'd be lots of people attending. Okay. Yeah, I've been to Portland before. That's right. Yeah, and you know, you can get together with a group of people. It it, it just depends on you know what what they want to do. But a group of people that would that would work because if you can knock out a hotel, a seven hundred dollar hotel with seven people putting a hundred dollars in, something like that. Yeah. Oh, good luck with that. Hopefully. Yeah, I think you're you're probably gonna be very successful going forward with that as people get the word out. Right. And I always need help. Because I'm I'm technologically challenged and I'm I'm working with somebody new to get my uh, my blog site back going and my Facebook and all that stuff like that and I just need to get the word out like this Tampa one. I really, really need to get the word out about that one. Uh, because it's in a couple of weeks, but that's what I need. I need. Uh, I don't want to come somewhere and, and have five people in the room because, oh no, you know we we, we couldn't fill up the room. So just yeah, you know, it's consider, too, too expensive. Right, right, right. And the, by the way, I didn't. I, I forgot to mention the book. The 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 uh, how to stick it to the IRS confessions from a former insider is at stickittotheirs dot com, and how to Escape the Rat Race, Four Keys to Acquire the Life of Your Dreams, is at how, the number two, escapetheratrace.com. So that's how, the number two, escapetheratrace.com. Oh, cool. Cool. And, uh, Sherry, you have a Facebook uh, account, and, and you have a video up there. You're talking about these presentations. So if anybody wants to go to Facebook, Look up Sherry Peel Jackson. Uh, she's got some content on there, a video or, or, or two and some links. So uh, there's some additional information on Facebook. You, you can you can go out there and grab right now as well. Boy, well, I bet you'd like to meet. Pardon? Go ahead, go ahead Sherry. I'll, I'll make a comment when you're done. I was going to say that I have a, a couple of other Facebook pages, Escape the Rat Race with Sherry Peel Jackson and Stick It to the IRS with Sherry Peel Jackson. Okay. Where they can oh, go so and do likes. Okay, very cool. <laughs> and I have well, a uh, YouTube page, which is Sherry Peel Jackson. They can subscribe to YouTube. When I put up videos, they'll be the first to see them. Okay. That's a YouTube channel as well. We had a guest last week, and you weren't here for it, but it was Nick, Nick from Odessa who's running for governor down there yeah. in Texas. And he's on the line with us okay. tonight, but his one of his Con- uh, running uh, – huh? Congress. Oh, running for Congress. I'm sorry, Nick. Yeah, well, we're going to do governor next, aren't you? Uh, but he's right. one of one of the platforms he's running on is is the whole thing with the IRS, Sherry. So I was glad to see him back on the phone tonight with us, listening to what you had to say. Oh yeah, you know the the U.S. Congress has tried several times to eliminate the IRS. People have to know that you know prior to the IRS, the government ran fine. There's a Federal Reserve chairman from the 30s or 40s named Beardsley Rummel, and he wrote a treatise called Taxes for Revenue are Obsolete. And what it says is taxes are, are to it's, are for redistribution of wealth, and that's what they're for. So when people pay taxes, they're, they're, it's not to fix the roads because the gas tax pays for that. It's not to pay the policemen and the firemen because our property taxes and abalone taxes pay for that. It's a, a redistribution of wealth from the poor and the middle class to the wealthy, and that's how they retain power. 
And until we get to the point where we can get rid of the IRS, this country is not going to prosper. We prospered well prior to the IRS, and now it's just all this money. Oh, oh, and by the way, um, Ronald Reagan commissioned the Grace Commission, and they came back and said not a not a nickel of money income, income taxes that's collected is used for running the country. So all those people, all those gurus out there telling that lie that the money that's collected in income taxes goes towards running the country, they just need to look at the Grace Commission reports. It's, I think, you know, within the first 30 pages of it, it says that. So we just need to wake up. And, and if you turn off the television then and start reading and paying attention to uh, shows like yours on online and viable resources that are online, then people will learn what they need to know. But, again, I'm from the South, and in the South here we make up words, and I've made up a word. So there's ignorant. Ignorant means you don't know. But ignorant means you don't want to know, and we have too many ignorant people out there right now. Well, D.B. Kidd, uh, this is Nick. Uh, I also go by Texas Governor, which is why Dee Dee. <laughs> yeah, I am looking to do the Governor thing in 2018 because that's when it comes up again. But uh, Dee Dee Kidd has written that the uh, the income taxes collected go to pay the usury back to the money lenders who are screwing the American sheeple. That do is you, exactly do you right. Agree with that, Sherry? Oh, that is totally right. And then the IRS are the bouncers for that club. Yeah. The IRS is the bouncers for those, the Federal Reserve. is a non-auditable private banking cartel that collects over $40 million an hour in interest from the American people. My 18-month-old granddaughter is already $96,000 in debt based on the debt clock. Right. Well, my, my candidate... Hey, Nick. Hey, Nick. Yeah. Well, basically, what you just said is the same thing that came out in the Grace Commission. Right. Because it basically said that all income tax, all it did was go to payment of interest on the debt. It didn't go for any services provided by the government. Yeah, no infrastructure. No nothing. Right. No, it just wasn't any interest. And 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 we need to get it across to these people who call themselves Christians. But this isn't interest, it's usury. And God has condemned in both the Old Testament and the New Testament usury. So we need to start using that term. And, and as I say, my three major uh, issues of the platform is going to be revitalizing the, mili- the state militias so that you, we can get rid of the kick out the Federal Reserve and the IRS. Well, yeah, hey, and these and these militias, these private militias, Oregon, Nevada, they're just—I mean, I'm sorry, no offense—but it's just stupid to do that. We need to organize, and that's another thing that my I'm involved in or going to be involved in. Organize to put pressure okay. on the state legislatures to revitalize the state militias. Okay. We, Can I, okay. This is this is going to be a quick one. I, I need to respond to this. Hey, Jim, 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 Jim. Uh, wait, we have Sherry still on the line. So I, I know, know, and I want to talk to Sherry. So I just want to make, uh, okay. make a statement. They're directed to Sherry, though. Well, well, okay, Sherry. You need to understand that there are militias out here, and 
we have approached our governors, and the governors don't want anything to do with us. So that's the case. And it's that, that's the case all over the country, is that there are people that are concerned, they have formed, they're malicious, they're unorganized, because the governors refuse to organize. Period. Okay, Sherry, let me tell you this. I, I'm on your, on your list for your newsletter, and I want to thank you for your sacrifice to humanity for going to jail over this fraud. You are one of my champions. Well, thanks for the encouragement. It wasn't my intention to go to jail, but, you know, well, God knows. We didn't, we, wow. didn't, we, didn't, we didn't want you going to jail. Right. But, but the truth still the, needs to be told. Same, that's right. And we're still on the same spot. So we, we have to, to press on and speak the truth of what's going on. So, anyway, what we need to do is we need to, you're welcome, we need to form, we need to do strategic planning, strategic planning, and I I bring that up again. What they did with the bus companies, that was strategic planning. So, there's there's revolt and there's revolution. Revolution comes with strategic planning. Okay, so hey, you know what? People need to get together to come out with some strategic plans that are going to work and not get well, people killed. I want to I want to applaud you on your idea of economic protest because I think that's very important especially now because you have major um, you got Stansberry Research, um, Agora Financial they're out there, and they're, t- they're telling people, hey, don't put your money in the banks. Only put enough in for what you need to pay your bills. Keep the money in cash. Get it into gold and silver. Put it in the land or some other uh, income-producing, you know, real estate. But don't trust the banks. So... If we would start, if people would just start to move and say, "Okay, I'm going to take this percentage of my money, and I'm, I'm, I'm putting it in the cash in my in, in my house, or gold and silver, or land purchases, or real estate purchases," we take that money away from from the Goliath, right? Wow. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, they're going, "Boy." Deposits are really going down, yeah, because we're keeping our money. That that's that's a plan also, because the banksters want want to earn millions of dollars in interest on your money and give you a half percent. Well, we're, they're talking about going to negative interest. Yes, that's true, and that's no. So, so yeah, yeah. So if you want to keep your money in my bank, you're going to pay me two percent. Uh, I don't think so. I don't know who. I don't know why people keep money in banks. We have other means of yes. uh, of, of transacting these days. But again, you have the majority of the people who are in a box. They've been brainwashed, and they do things because that's the way it's been done. But thankfully, a lot of people are waking up. Like I said before, especially the young people, and they're looking for ways out of the box, ways out of the rat race. Ways to stick it to the IRS. Amen. 
Amen. Amen. Anybody? Uh, anybody else? A, a yeah, Sherry, question? Sherry, this is Steve with uh, AU Network. And uh, first of all, sure is nice to have you on with us again. And thank you so much. We we think about you often. And uh, I was going to ask about your good friend because uh, she's a personal hero of mine, just like you are. Is uh, your good friend Cynthia McKinney? Have you talked with her lately? I have. Cynthia is over in Bangladesh right now. Oh yeah. Um, she, she, I did, I did, we used to be neighbors, and I moved out of the neighborhood, and so did she, but uh, we do keep in touch, and I think a couple of days ago we emailed, but I've been in contact with her, um, you know, pretty much this fall, fall, I mean, this, this past three or four months. She's teaching over there. Wow. Wow. So she's doing okay then? She's good. She's good. Thanks. I'm glad to hear that. Thanks for sharing. May I make a comment? Sure. Okay. Hi there. I just wanted to say that in addition to everything else that you said, for some reason, um, banks um, call interest on savings accounts interest, and they also call interest on credit cards interest. So you, they use the same word for funds they give you and funds you owe to them. Go figure. Um, well. And and then another thing I've I've noticed, of course, is that you know the the banks when you when you go to an ATM and you you need cash, you're only withdrawing tens and twenties, so you're withdrawing an excessive amount, uh, probably so you'll end up spending more than you intended to spend. That's another thing that they do. And then, then the third thing that I've noticed is if, if you go to a, a bank and, and write a check made out to Federal Reserve notes, they won't accept that. They won't cash that. It has to be made out to cash or to a person. But if you try to make it out to Federal Reserve notes, they won't take it. They won't do anything with it. So anyway. Yeah. <laughs> they, they, have, they have their tricks of the trade. And... Uh, we have bartering and we have Bitcoin and we have, I think it's called OneCoin and other things that we can do to trade and, and be a community amongst each other. It's just a matter of whether people are going to go with convenience and go with complacency and go with what they've learned, what they've been brainwashed into doing all their lives, or whether they want to stretch out and, and find alternative ways to um, operate in commerce. Amen to that. Mm-hmm. Amen. To and that. I've I've also started calling bank robberies undocumented withdrawals. That really upsets <laughs> the bank managers. Anyway. Well, hey, hey, Mel, Mel, I've, I've got an Mel. Mel, I've got an idea for you. Uh, no, I'm not into it. Probably not. It. What, what can I do for you? My goodness. Well, we get to let Sherry uh, Peel have her okay. final moment yeah, here, too. I'm, I'm yeah, yeah. done. Thank I'm, you. This, nice this to talk to you. Okay. Thank you, Mel. This guy, Sherry, Sherry's I'm, I'm sure you guys word. are doing this. Wait, 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 wait uh, we're going to close it out with Sherry. Sherry, you have the last word. Across the country, as simple as, simple as a, a hotel room with, with – um, with uh, maybe a, a room to present 10, 20, 30, 50 plus people uh, organizing to grab, get people into that room. Uh, it will cost them something. Uh, 
this is uh, Sherry, a, a week uh, end, typically a Saturday, Sunday, or Friday, Saturday, right? They're usually Saturdays. I have one on a Sunday and I have one on a Friday, but they're usually Saturdays because people are normally off on Saturdays. Got it. So it's an all-day event, basically. And uh, it's got to be near a restaurant so you can go out and have have, have a bite to eat for for the hour, hour and a half lunch. And That's it's right. Very, very, very simple. Education, um, and you get sherry firsthand for the whole, for the whole day. Uh, so and 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 please follow the links in the newsletter to uh, purchase a, a copy of, of of one or both of her books. Follow her on Facebook. Uh, she's got three Facebook pages out there. And uh, Sherry, we hope to have you back on. I hope it gets warmer down there because it's bitterly cold up here. <laughs> yes, I'm I'm waiting for spring. Yes, thank you, Fred, for having me on the show. Thank you, Sherry. We'll definitely stay in touch, everyone. And guys, if you want to stay on the call and chat and talk and share, feel free. But the official end of the show right now, for from a presentation standpoint, we'll call it a wrap. Thank you, Sherry, and Steve and Dee Dee and everyone for coming on the call each week. We'll see you next week, Thursday night. Thank you, Fred. Good Thank night, you, everyone. Sherry. God bless you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Good night, everyone. Yeah, anytime. Bye-bye. Good night. Hey, Sherry. Oh, she's gone. She's gone? Yeah, she had, oh, to, that, she had to go. That, uh, you she was saying that, you know. American Underground Network. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.